0: And good morning listeners, welcome to another edition of Solidarity Breakfast. This is Lalita Chalaya here, taking you through to 9 o'clock, the 1st of October. Lots of things happening, footy of course for those who are interested in footy, but today is also um, an- another important day that many people are probably not aware of. It's not like it's, like it's advertised like Mother's Day or Father's Day or Valentine's Day. It's actually the International Day of Older persons on this, this morning. It is, and it's not advertised, it's not celebrated like many other days. So let's talk about this a bit more because um, there's an important issue within that matter that I'm discussing, I'm going to discuss with um, Catherine Yeoman, who is the CEO of Mission Australia. So let's start the morning with Catherine. Good morning, yes, Catherine. Ma- Good morning. Welcome to Three CI, and thank you very much for being available such an early hour. I don't know if you're in Victoria and Sydney, but this is a long weekend in Victoria. (laughs) My pleasure. (laughs) So we have an issue that is uh, almost a secret in the media at this stage. Tell us about it.
1: Well, it is the very sad fact that there are um, a significant number of people aged over 55 who find themselves homeless. And in particular, what listeners might be surprised about is the number of homeless older women. And we see this as a really concerning emerging trend and one that's likely to get worse over coming years. So we thought it was really important to highlight on, as you say, International Day of Older Persons.
0: Yes. And it's surprising that nobody else is talking about it. I haven't heard a word in the media about this. It was almost a ignoring the elders? Are they not economically very useful to this country? You know what, what is going on here? Why is there no announcement or any kind of respect paid to people who have contributed to the society for all their lives, literally?
1: Well, I think maybe part of that might be because the, the issue is, a, um, it is one that we need to solve by increasing the stock of social and affordable housing. So it's not going to be a quick fix. It's going to require investment at all levels of government. It's going to require, we believe, change in policy settings at a federal government level, more investment by state and territory governments to increase housing stock and uh, trying to attract um, institutional and private investment to increase the number of affordable homes that are available. Um, This has been, I suppose, an issue that has been um, emerging over time. Uh, and, uh, it's going to get worse. Um, and I'd, I'd also like to draw your listeners' attention to the fact that we can often hear a lot in the media. I mean, to your point, there, there, there's some things we don't hear about, but other things we do hear a lot about. We hear a lot, for example, about the amount of rough sleeping in Melbourne, um, city area. Uh, it's the same in other capital cities right across the country. And we can sometimes think that the face of homelessness is people rough sleeping. Uh, but actually, uh, there are many people who find themselves homeless and older women would fall into this category where rough sleeping is simply too dangerous um, and maybe quite, quite shameful and, and embarrassing for, for the older woman, as you can imagine. So they might be sleeping in their cars they might be doing the older person's couch surfing, you know, mm. moving around relatives and friends and trying to get a few nights in their spare bedroom. Uh, they might be in crisis accommodation or motels. So it's a little bit of a hidden, a hidden uh, homeless that we're talking about, and probably a hidden problem which is really going to start emerging over coming years as our population ages.
0: Why particularly women Catherine? I just find it really curious because you know what you hear in the media generally is oh well you know these are the 50s babies and they all have got a home, they all have had free education so they're all well off and they're all you know at least comfortably settled in their own homes and yet you, we have a figure here that 19.2% Of the total number of homeless people over the age of 55
1: that's That's a curious Mm -hmm. curious figure yes yes And, and at first it seems curious doesn't it but then when we actually look at the factors that go to creating a situation where some older women are finding themselves homeless for the very first time in their lives they never thought they would face this it's really come about from a number of factors all accumulating so an older woman might be recently widowed Um, She might be single due to marriage breakdown or she may have been single all her life. Now what we know from women's um, workplace uh, engagement is that women can often find uh, themselves in and out of the labour market over their working life and that'll be because they're raising a family. Um, They might have care responsibilities as they get older. They may have been uh, the family member in in the family unit that was working part-time so that those various responsibilities could be balanced. So that means as they get to the end of their working life that they haven't got as large a retirement balance. There's no big nest egg necessarily. They might have limited retirement savings. They certainly wouldn't have an opportunity to have built up a considerable superannuation balance So if they don't own their own home outright and they're relying on rental market and the rent goes up, they get a couple of unexpected bills, perhaps the energy bill is larger than they they can manage at that particular time or the car needs fixing, then quickly things can spiral out of control and they may be in a position where they're no longer able to maintain their rental tenancy. Then if they can't find affordable rent to go into, all of a sudden they're finding themselves homeless for the very first
0: time in their lives. Mm. Also, there has been a very high divorce rate in Australia. Um, the last figure I saw was close to the 70s. And I guess in that situation, generally the home gets sold and the partners take whatever money they get out of it. And yet they end up in a situation where the man ends up with more money than the woman. I find that, you know, that, that's not discussed enough as well because I- invariably women end up with the caring responsibilities. I'm a good example of that. <laughs> Actually, father's taken off and I've got, I'm have got i literally left holding the babies. So it's that sort of situation get, women get caught up in and don't have that opportunity to really um, live by themselves in luxury as generally seen by the community. But would that be something you've thought about?
1: Well, I can't speak into detail around the, the Family Law Act, but what we do know, of course, is that if there are limited assets, um, then they can quickly run out as a resource in this situation. So, you know, it, it would affect um, many different people in different ways, um, but at the heart, it's really linked to the lack of appropriate affordable housing that's available for people on whatever incomes they might find themselves in at whatever time of life. So we need to acknowledge the fact that many people, uh, again, whatever their circumstances, will find themselves relying on the aged pension in in their later years in life, and we should be expecting that older members of our community can live with dignity and uh, respect and in a safe, secure environment. Well, there's simply not enough affordable homes that if someone's relying on the aged pension as their form of income or other welfare income support payments or a very limited income, um, there's not enough properties where people can actually afford that rent and not be in rental stress.
2: Hmm.
0: That's a, that's a big issue facing a lot of people. And recently, I know the Aboriginal community were allocated a, a large sum of um, assets to be able to house uh, that community, which is a fantastic thing. But this issue hasn't come up for the elderly, I suppose, um, maybe because not as, as uh, demanding or noisy as the other groups that are f- uh, fighting for it. Um, but one one other curious point I find is that. I'm from um, India originally, and, and their group homes are very popular, like kids and, and parents do live together. Do you find that that is not a common factor in Australia? Everybody is sort of individualist in the way they live?
1: Well, again, I mean, there will be different um, families and circumstances in which those arrangements will will suit and be very appropriate. Um, But there are other situations where there aren't the large families necessarily. Uh, There aren't homes that can adequately accommodate um, multiple family members or some family members may be estranged. So there's Many different reasons why that might not be an appropriate um, uh, option for for some older people. Uh, so we can't shy away from the fact that Australia does have a housing affordability crisis and that we think there needs to be a minimum of over 200,000 social homes um, added to the available stock by 2025 if we're really going to start making inroads on this problem
0: it 's a massive issue for the government maybe that 's why they don 't want to do anything about it because um, we know that in Bendigo Street in um, Collingwood here young people who are homeless have occupied a few homes that have been empty for a long time and we have got more than thirty five thousand people waiting on the waiting list for um, a home. so it is a shame for a rich country like Australia not to have sufficient housing for so many people. It, 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 this is Victoria alone. Imagine the whole of Australia is, I mean, you probably know more about it than I do in terms of numbers of people who are homeless. This is just the elderly, this, this many people, and the whole population is lacking housing, which is a sad fact. But today we are, f- we are focusing on the, on the, um, elderly or older persons. I shouldn't say elderly, should I? I should say older persons, um, Situation as it's the 1st of October and it's the Older Person's Day, International Day, isn't it? That's right. Mm, that's a bit sad. But thank you so much, Catherine. Is there anything else you want to add? And in any way, uh, people who are listening could support your, your mission, so to speak.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I encourage anyone who's interested in this issue or finding out more about what Mission Australia does to check out our website, missionaustralia.com.au. And thanks so much for your time and interest this morning. Thank
0: you very much for being awake at the start of the morning. My pleasure. Thanks. My pleasure. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was Catherine Yeoman, who is the CEO of Mission Australia, talking about the homeless situation for the older persons, especially women. And uh, we know that it's a huge crisis that's happening. So if, if you've just tuned in, this is 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. I'm Lalitha, I'm taking you through 9 o'clock. Now today's format of Solidarity Breakfast is slightly different. I've got a group of people coming in to chat about a very important issue and I'll introduce them as they come in. And welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. We have in the studio Jeffrey Alexander X. Is that right? Yeah. Correct. And uh, Jacob. Andrew Arthur. Andrew Arthur. I always have difficulty with that name. Yeah. Now this is a, an interesting situation because Jeffrey. Some people may, of you may know that Jeffrey um, has had a one-person crusade against racism in Melbourne, and in particular, he holds a circular notice with not a racism. Um, in Flinders Street, and particularly in front of Flinders Street Station. And, um, he has been supported by many people. Even, um, a policeman has given him permission to keep on doing that. And, um, he's been encouraged and he's been there for over a year. Jeffrey, would that be right? Yeah, over a year, almost two years. Now. Almost two years. So, congratulations on your, on your, your one person campaign. Um, now, the, The thing is, something happened last week. Now, maybe we should start telling about why you actually started doing that.
3: Okay. Uh, First of all, uh, let me say I'm called Jeffrey, and I came to to Australia in September of 2005. I came as a refugee uh, from Uganda, and then I came here, I tried to uh, settle into this country. Um, but I'll I'll skip that part and I'll come to the reason why I started doing my campaign against racism. Uh, in 2014, uh, I did uh, I was racially uh, harassed, I was racially I was mocked, I was ridiculed, I was humiliated by a doctor at the Royal Dental Hospital of Melbourne. I complained to the hospital. I complained to the hospital uh, through the website, and the hospital did not respond to me. So I decided to take the case to uh, to the uh, health services commissioner. The, the health services commissioner contacted the hospital and asked them about my complaint. The hospital denied that nothing happened. So um, after some period of time, the health services commission decided to close the case because the hospital kept denying that nothing so happened. So it was a cop who attacked you? Yeah, it was. Uh, she, she, was uh, she mistreated me, mm-hmm. a doctor at the hospital. So... So uh, after the (coughs) Health Services Commissioner closed the case, there was nobody helping me. I was frustrated. I was racially harassed. I was mistreated at the hospital. Mm. So I decided to uh, take my case to the Australian Human Rights Commission. They they told me that because the case was already looked on by the Health Services Commissioner, they cannot look at the case. So they rejected the case. So the hospital denied that I was mistreated. The Health Services Commissioner couldn't help me, and the Australian Human Rights Commission couldn't help me. So I was very frustrated. I didn't have money to, to uh, maybe to, to go to a court or to pay a lawyer. So what I said I have to do, I, have to, uh, I decided I'm going to fight the hospital. So I decided to make signs Yes. They stopped racism now. And I made some signs. Um, I went in front of the hospital and I started protesting in front of the hospital. I protested uh, for a few weeks and then the, the, the head of the hospital... Uh, and some other medical staff, they came and apologized to me, they, they said they are very sorry for what I've experienced. And I told them, for a very long time you guys kept denying that nothing happened. I'm happy that you guys are now apologizing, but I need an apology later. And I also need compensation for the pain caused to me. So they did send me the apology later, and I um, also gave them uh, some demands, and I told them they have to train their staff on how to deal with talking to people of different color, different races. Yes. So uh, they told me that they're going uh, to do all those things that I've asked them to do. But they, didn't, uh, uh, they, did, they did not give me the competition yet. But, so I decided to, uh, I said the hospital has uh, apologized, so I have to stop protesting at the hospital. And I said to myself, uh, I have to fight the bigger problem, which is racism. So I decided to uh, take my, uh, my campaign, my protest from the hospital. I took it to Frinda Street. So I said I have to fight the country. I have to fight racism in the country. So I took my campaign to Flinders Street and then I started to stand there in Flinders Street and started my campaign. That's how my campaign started. But without the incident at the hospital, I wouldn't have become uh, the person I am known now as an activist. I wouldn't have become like that, you know. Mm. So it, the whole, everything started at the hospital.
0: That's a great story yeah. and um, very courageous of you. Mm. Now, last weekend, um, something happened at Flinders Street after almost two years of protesting. Yeah. What actually happened?
3: Um... um uh, last last Friday, you know, I was uh, I was there doing what I used to do every Friday, Saturday, and other days going there with my signs, and I stand, you know, and um, I stand in the uh, at the intersection, and, you know, a lot of people take my photos and, and they post on Facebook, and sometimes people think I'm standing, I'm blocking the traffic, you know, I'm standing on the road or I'm blocking cars, but that's not the case. Before I started my campaign, I did ask permission from the police, and they told me, You're okay to be there. They gave me instructions of how I can be safe on intersection. They gave me all the instructions. They told me, if you're on this side, you're safe. Just do not block people crossing. Do not interfere with traffic. So I was following all the guidelines. Mm. So most of the police who come there, they do understand that. They say this guy knows what he's doing. So they don't disturb me. But there's some police officers who see me for the first time, and they just come there. They They don't want to see me there. They just want to move me out of there. So the ones last Friday, they they just came there and they told me to leave the to leave the to leave the to leave the, to leave the spot where I was uh, standing. I told them, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have to, uh, I've got permission from the police to be here. They said, no, you have to leave. You have to leave. The weren't listening to me. So they they trying to pull my hand. I said, no, you cannot take me from here. So I was pepper sprayed. I was arrested and I was taken to the to the to the police station.
2: Mm, and yeah.
0: what did they do to you in the police
3: station? Uh, because the paper spray was too much on my, on my, on my face, went to my neck, my mm-hmm. arms. It burned me, it burned me so much. So once I was inside the police station, um, the police, they spent almost an hour pouring water on my, on my face. So they kept pouring water, 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 until after an hour I started to feel better. But I felt as if my face was on fire, it was as if they poured acid on my face. Was really banning me, you know, it was too much.
0: And did the police say anything to you while you were in there? You know,
3: at, at the, at bef- before they perspired me to say, I'm going to arrest you. But after, like, um, they started pouring water, I started feeling better. They said, You're not under race, you're free to go, but you may get summoned, you know. Then they told me, I shouldn't go back there. I said, No, I'm going to go back there because I wasn't doing anything wrong. You guys are wrong. That's what I told them.
0: Okay, and Jacob, you were there. you witnessed this incident, and i've got dillman on the on the um, uh, line as well. She was another witness, yep. and things happened after that so Jacob, what did you see uh,
4: well, what I saw was um actually uh, <laughs> i actually didn't see um i wasn't the one i saw the aftermath of Jeffrey being taken in by police. It was um Dillman who's probably on the line who could probably tell um talk about more. directly what she saw, but you know what um in sort of response, I was kind of, you know, for me, um, my own initial reaction is I was absolutely shocked that, you know, Jeffrey was taken in by the police and the fact that he, you know, he, um, because he, I've known actually, I've known Jeffrey since last year. Um, he's always been protesting at that particular spot. Um, there's the police have never raised any issues. It just seemed to have come out of nowhere. Um, like, you know, it, like, it wasn't like a, a, a it, like, a, it was like a complete shock, shocking yes. kind of event, um, yeah. that, yeah, I didn't expect to happen. Of course, um, I think what we, what we did, um, because I was, I was campaigning, um, at a store on that particular Friday, what we did was we, um, helped, um, Jeffrey with some legal support. Um, mm. uh, not sure, um, what, what they kind of, what the legal support sort of gave, but of course, um, Jeffrey did say he might get summoned late at some point. Um, but I, though I would think he would have a strong case, um, even though I'm not a lawyer, um, because you know, he did previously he didn't receive, do wrong, yeah, you yeah, didn't do anything yeah. wrong. And okay,
0: Dylan, what's your take on the situation?
5: Yes, uh, good morning, Lali. Um, so I too, like Jacob, on that Friday afternoon was uh, at the Socialist Alliance stall. At the street station. Um, can I just add that last Friday it was Jeffrey's first day of also holding up a uh, say no to Pauline Hanson's racism sign as well? Mm. Um, yeah. That's um, an co- uh, in-
0: interesting coincidence, isn't it?
5: It is an interesting coincidence. Um, but yeah, that Friday I happened to look over, I saw the police. The three police officers approached Jeffrey, and I thought, you know, I better get my camera out because I, I had a I had a feeling that, you know, the something was going to happen, and you know it's always good to have this stuff on um, camera mm. in, in case yeah you need it in the future. But um yeah, as I mentioned on the Saturday rally in support of Jeffrey, um, the pepper spray was definitely not used as a last resort. It was really pulled out within seconds of the police officers police officers uh, approaching Jeffrey um, and yeah it was really yeah, I, I was shaken when I, you know, t- to be honest in the hours after the incident
2: <laughs> uh,
5: Jeffrey was more calm than I was because I was shocked to have have seen uh, what happened on Friday
0: mm. and you you are the one person who was able to video the incident on Facebook and it went almost viral didn't it <laughs>
5: Uh, yeah, I was definitely surprised at how many people had uh, viewed and shared um, the video. Yeah.
0: Mm, that's a good response for people who want to fight racism. But, Dilman, you also yeah. mentioned the rally. Tell us more about what happened.
5: Yeah. So, the next day, which was a Saturday at 5 o'clock, um, people gathered at Flinders Street Station uh, in support of Jaffrey and to protest against the actions of the um, Victoria Police um, on the Friday um, before. Um, so there was a few speakers, including uh, Les Thomas. Um, who's, a singer, who's
0: a singer and is a First Nation person.
5: Exactly right. And uh, so we did have, we, we also had a um, welcome to country, um, I believe, from a, a, a young woman who's also an Indigenous activist.
4: Um, um what was her name?
5: Yarramon, yes. Um, and so after we kind of gathered at Flinders Street Station, we moved to the intersection with Jeffrey usually protested and was arrested. Um, And uh, Jeffrey had um, requested for an apology by Victoria Police. Um, I also spoke at that rally and requested that the police officers, the police officer responsible with sex from the police force. Mm. Um, And yeah, that that, um, rally also received some pretty good media attention. um, In particular, the Age newspaper. So Um, I'm glad we were able to get our message across that afternoon. Mm. So you
0: called a rally within a matter of 24 hours, didn't you? And quite a few people turned up.
5: Uh, It wasn't me that actually organized the rally. I'm not sure, Um, but within minutes of the video reaching Facebook, um, there was um, a rally organized in support of Jeffrey. Uh, I'm not sure who actually organised that rally, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, kind of, it was it's kind just, of actually spontaneous. Uh, it's huh? kind of
4: <laughs> quite spontaneous because an um, anonymous, but not not anonymous as in the actual organisation, but um, it's a particular Facebook group that just called the rally, and I've never heard of them before. Like, there's pos- okay. there possibly some there possibly some activists I actually know, but it's hiding under the banner mm-hmm. because I could actually but that's good. I could easily um, create a Facebook page. And then create a rally, mm-hmm. like it's just very. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but that's
0: beside the point. The fact is, there was such important response and an e- in incredibly quick response. Now, how did you yeah. feel about that, Jeffrey? I mean, the fact that so many people responded to this uh, thing that happened to uh,
3: you. I was, I was very happy. I was very happy. Uh, it, it showed me that I'm, um, um, I'm not alone in this fight. It showed mm. me that there are a lot of people out there who support me. So I was very happy to, to see hundreds of people coming. So. I was happy and I gave speeches and I told them that um, um, I haven't done anything wrong. It's Victoria Police that is wrong. And um, um, after giving my speech, I said I'm going to go back and uh, those. Uh, I told them uh, if you want to follow me, you're, you're, you're free to come. So people followed me and I went to the spot where I do stand and uh, there um, I did ask the, uh, the police to apologize. And they're just looking at me and uh, they just shied away and moved away. Mm. So, yeah, but I was happy with uh, the turnout of people. So it showed me that a lot of people are concerned about uh, the issues happening here in our society, the problem of racism. Mm. Yeah.
0: So let's take a quick break. And I'm waiting for one more person to join us. And I, I'm, we're going to try and put this in a broader context because it's been... Quite um, a topic of discussion since the elections, especially with, as as Dilman mentioned, yeah. uh, the fact that you hu- you held up yeah. the anti-Hansen placard, yeah. Yeah. and it just may be a coincidence, but everybody is very suspicious of what why they actually took you on on yeah. a day when you. We're going to
3: um, maybe, hold that particular... Maybe probably Hanson supporters uh, send the police to come and uh, send me away from there. You never know, do you?
0: All right, so <laughs> let's go to some community announcements for a couple of minutes. If you've just, uh, you've just tuned in, this is Trisha and Solidarity Breakfast. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, you're with uh, Jeffrey Alexander X and uh, Jacob. Jacob Andrew Arthur. Yes. Did I say that yep. correctly? No, yes, that's yes. correctly. And this is Lalita here. We're still waiting for one more guest. And there's Dilman Rahman on the, um, um, online as well. We're discussing the incident that happened to Jeffrey Alexander last Friday where he was pepper sprayed by the police for holding a sign. A sign that he was given permission by the cops originally to, almost two years ago to be able to do that with, with all the legal things on his side. So Jeffrey has a few more things to say. Let's listen to Jeffrey again.
3: Okay. um, uh, First of all, I want to talk about uh, racism in this country. I just want to say that um, one out of five people living in this country has experienced racist abuse. And then you find uh, one out of five school students experience racism every day. Then one in 20 Australians say they have been physically attacked because of their race. Then you find most migrants from Africa... I've experienced racism and discrimination here in Australia.
0: And you come from Uganda.
3: I come from Uganda. That's Mm -hmm. in East Africa. And then you find almost every young black male, like myself, living in this country has been racially abused or discriminated against one time. Mm -hmm. If you find a guy like me who said, you know, I haven't been racially abused, I haven't been discriminated against, it means he's still new in this country, he's been here for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, but it's not going to be long before you realize what's really going on in this country. So, you find all of us have been mistreated or discriminated against or racial abused, And then you find um, uh, one out of five migrants have been told to go back to their country. It's a fact. And if you look at this country, you you see the national anthem says it begins with, it begins with, Australians all, let us rejoice, for we are young and free. Yes, we are young, but I don't think we are free. We cannot be, I don't think, yes, yes, we are young, but many of us are not free. (coughs) We cannot be free or rejoice if we are treated as second-class citizens we cannot be free or rejoice if we are racially abused or discriminated against we cannot be free or rejoice if some people in our society are disadvantaged while others are privileged we cannot be free we can we cannot be free or rejoice if uh, the indigenous people continue to be mistreated um, and discriminated against on the land of their ancestors the land they have been living on for uh, thousands of years. We can only be free or rejoice if we stop the racism and discrimination and, and, and live uh, and, and love one another and love uh, and be like brothers and sisters, yes. love one another, brothers and sisters. Um, I want to say something that uh, with me like me coming to Australia as a refugee or because I'm black uh, doesn't mean like I have no right to speak up regarding issues affecting our society. Uh, I took an oath. I'm an Australian citizen. People should stop calling me a refugee all the time, whether it's on TV, whether it's on the radio or whatever they say, refugee. You find someone is called a Sudanese, the person has, um, the person has a, uh, an Australian passport and also votes on election day, but they cannot call him as Australian. They still continue to call him my sudanese you know you cannot uh, um you don't have to be white to be australian you don't have to be born here to be australian uh you can look at the former prime minister tony abbott and julia gillard they weren't born here but they but they they became prime minister of of this country so you don't have to uh, um to be born here you don't have to be white to be australian you don't have to eat vegemite or play cricket or 40 <laughs> to be Australian. Yes. Anybody of any race, of any skin colour can be Australian. So I want to tell the Australian people, I am an Australian citizen. People should stop calling me all the time. Refugee, Ugandan. I mean, I'm an Australian. I'm all the time campaigning against racism on the streets. I am an Australian citizen. And I do vote in every election. So you should know that I care about this country. And I'm, I have the rights... The rights like any other citizen of this country. I'm not a refugee coming here to, to protest against uh, various issues. I'm a citizen of this country concerned about what is going on in this country. So, uh, so um, 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 I want to say, um, I think I should.
0: That's fine. That was extremely heartfelt, Jeffrey. Yeah, Thank you very much. We'll give you a bit of breather and welcome to the discussion, Sue. And Sue Bolton is a. Um, a councillor in Moreland City Council, and she organized an anti racism uh, rally in uh, Coburg earlier this year. And there were certain repercussions that um, happened there. And
6: so, good morning. Hi, how's it going? <laughs>
0: good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. <clears throat> a bit of a Russian this morning. So, what has been the fallout? I mean, I, I know you're standing, re, um, standing for your position again, and it is something that every citizen is concerned about because of the rise in racism and there's the election of the extreme right wing in Queensland and across the country into the Senate in the form of Hanson and so on. So what did you take on what's happening in Moreland and a general um, view of racism and the way it's travelling in
6: Australia? Well, I think <coughs> there is some divided opinion in Moreland uh, and in, of course... Uh, attitudes within Moreland are affected by the same sort of issues um, that are affecting all Australians, um, as in the sort of propaganda machines, the encouragement um, towards a racist viewpoint. And, you know, probably what you can see in Moreland at the moment, um, as a result of uh, the election of One Nation and the encouragement of One Nation by the Liberal Party, is that there are some people now who are openly, proudly racist. Um, We did a stall in Coburg uh, a couple of of weeks ago on a a Friday, and there were several people who came up to our stall who were proudly racist. And once, like, say, 10 years ago, that would not have happened. It would have been very rare for someone to be openly racist. People might have been... um, openly racist to their friends and family but you know they felt you know that they had to keep those sort of racist views in the closet um, and so that is one one viewpoint and certainly you know we've had a few people come up to say you know I'm going to make sure Sue Bolton gets chucked off council because of all the damage she caused to Coburg by organising this anti-racism rally um, and the viewpoint being put forward by those people is that Moreland is a beautiful, culturally harmonious place where nothing racist ever happens. We blend together so beautifully. We've got this beautiful Moreland utopia. Now maybe Moreland is better than some other areas um, in that regard, but I know for a fact that there are racist things happening in Moreland and in particular a Muslim woman Come up to me the other day um, she said there 's a lot of racist issues you a lot of racism you just um, because you can 't fight every single comment that 's racist that 's made towards you, but she said this incident was she felt much more extreme, and she wanted to join my anti-racism movement as she just de- <laughs> as she described it because i organized the rally and what had happened to her is she went into a shop that she goes into not every week but periodically and the woman um who ran the shop i don't know if she was an owner or a worker was very rude to her and she said you know i you know speak nicely or civilly to me Um, and this woman then ordered her out of the shop and said she didn't want her kind um, coming to the shop Um, this particular woman is a covered woman and you know that you know there is something which we do have to tackle we do have to stand up against and I don't think it is sufficient to just say we're a beautiful, multicultural, harmonious community. You actually have to go beyond that and oppose racism. But also I think the other thing we have to do um, is, which has to go hand in hand with building an anti-racism movement, is to also um, build a political alternative to neoliberal um, Pro rich, anti poor um, po- economic policies that we're having thrust and rammed down our throats in Australia and around the world. And how do you connect that economic policies of um, liberal
0: governments across the world, really? And in particular now, it's no, more noticeable in, in Australia. How do you connect racism to the econo- current economic policies? Sir?
6: Well, I think it's um, the, well, probably there's two elements to that it firstly, I think it 's the age old adage that um, you know when you keep people you know you um, uh, you keep people divided, then you can rule over people more easily, so that while people are attacking each other they can um, the ruling class can um, you know, get away with carrying out all sorts of um, attacks um, while we're focused on fighting each other. Mm. And I think it's the age-old principle that the union movement has campaigned on is um, united, we win, divided, we fall. And racism is disastrous for the union movement. Um, and I think it is quite clear that um, the various governments... Um, Liberal Party in particular, but, you know, Labor Party's been guilty of uh, this as well. Um, they've been deliberately creating fear because, you know, in the mid-90s, people in Australia, the vast bulk of people, did not hate refugees, did not demonise refugees. There was a small percentage that might have. But this was is an attitude which has been deliberately created through misinformation, false information, information designed to create fear by governments being fed into the media. And then last year, I think this is a very good example of how fear is created in the Australian population. Um, it first of all looked like Tony Abbott was going to take Australia to invade the Ukraine. Then suddenly IS appeared on our TV screens um, beheading various people. And then there were these... Um, raids on Muslim, you know, 800 Muslim households across the country and the police and politicians announced to the media that the police had seized a sword. Now, of course, um, a lot of Australians would have been terrified thinking, oh, you know, I'm facing being beheaded. But it turned out that this was a plastic ornamental sword which couldn't cut a cucumber. <laughs> it was, and the police would have known that when yeah. they took it away. Mm.
0: Thanks, Sue. Uh, Dilma, you from you come from the Muslim community as well. Did you want to add something before mm-hmm. I go to Jeffrey to have the, the last word? So,
5: um, so yeah, um, I agree with Sue Bolton, and um, I think she's been doing great work in the Morland community to combat uh, racism. Um, but uh, the I think it is this attitude towards the Muslim population is something I believe that has been um, you know, manufactured by the, the media and uh, as a result, you know, good everyday, hardworking Muslims have to pay the price, whether it be they're out shopping, whether it be in the workplace or uh, whether it be, you know, like Jeffrey uh, in, the, in the middle of a peaceful protest.
2: Mm.
0: So it's, it's a combination of a variety of, of um, things that... It the differences, whether it's Islam or whether it's your, your color is different or you look different, mm-hmm. you have that prejudice mm-hmm. that's, that's a thread that goes along. Jeffrey, last word to you in this discussion.
3: Uh, I just want to say that we should, um, I want to tell the Australian people we have to, uh, to stop racism and discrimination because it's affecting our life. It's affecting the way we live, in that we're not living a, product, a productive life because of, of this racism. We, we suffer, we become vulnerable. And you see some of uh, our young uh, African-Australians, they end up on the street becoming gangs. Um, you can look at the Apex gangs, They're, they have uh, they have lost sense of direction, and uh, we don't want things like that to happen. We have to live in a society where we, everyone has equal rights and opportunities, so we can all thrive and live a better life. And we can only have that if we can love one another and live like brothers and sisters. So I'm going to be campaigning against racism and discrimination for... For, for many years to come and uh, I wanna tell the Victoria police to, to stop disturbing me. I'm not doing anything wrong. Well said. Thank,
0: Thank you. you very much, Jeffrey and Jacob and Sue and Dilman. That was a great discussion. And I think this racism is such an important issue. We've got to keep it going. It is dividing people. It is In fact, Beyond Blue, which is the depression or the mental health um, organization for Victoria, has clearly said discrimination is a cause of lots of mental health issues. And hence the connection to health, the health of our nation, young people, migrants and so on, and women and children too. They suffer suffer, um, racism in schools and things. So thank you all. Thank you, Dilman. Thank you. And um, we'll talk again another time. Thanks, guys. uh, welcome back to 3CR, this is Solidarity Breakfast and you're listening to Lalita Chalaya and we've just had a great discussion with uh, Dilma Rahman who is a um, activist and a member of Social Alliance and we had Jeffrey, our guest for today, who is a lone campaigner or who was a lone campaigner until last weekend um, against racism at Flinders Street and Jacob Andruatha who was a witness to the events, and um, Sir Bolton who organized the an anti-racism Rally in Moland and discussed the issue of racism and the rise in attacks on people and Jeffrey's um, experience is an example of that. Very quick announcements before we go on to Kevin Healy, who is our regular contributor. Um, there's a pap- pub, for discussion on the 4th of October. Uh, the speakers will be another Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Ikwa who was a refugee who arrived from West Papua in in 2006, and Robert Stringer, who's a retired United Church pastor, who has worked tirelessly on this particular issue. And it will be held at, at 407 Swanson Street, the resistance center on the fifth floor. Now, there's a marriage equality rally on the... 8th of October, that's next Saturday, at 1 p.m. at the, the State Library, and we uh, regularly announce the regularly announce the um, rallies at um, CUB, of course, and uh, please get that get down there to support those workers that are fighting for their jobs. And the public housing rally is still continuing; the occupation is um, ongoing. Now, one other West Papua event that's coming up is on the 9th of October, that's Sunday at the Bendigo Hotel, Collingwood, in support of the West Papuans' struggle for independence. So let's move on to Kevin Healy's contribution for this week.
7: A week solidarity, Bricky Team, listener, when the big day has finally dawned and good news will be crossing shortly to the ground as the excitement builds for the big game. And once again, we're fortunate to have our regular Kevin and even luckier to have once again our special commentator, Michelle. Well, just check. What's it like over there, Kevin? The atmosphere is electric. It's surreal. "'Do you know what surreal means, Kevin?' "'No idea, but obviously it's something to do with sport!' Well, well, now we've crossed. Take it away. Thank you, and there's been a sensation over here. The caring business class party team has been blocked from getting onto the ground. Their captain, Tunner Bull, is in the race trying to lead his team out, and a number of the players, St Bernardi, Christian son of a man and a woman, a bit more for the bosses, a bets on the bosses, and Barnacle are blocking the race. What's going on, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. The caring business class captain, Mr. Tunner Bull, is in the race trying to lead his team out. And a number of the players, Senator St. Bernardi, Mr. Christian, son of a man and a woman, Mr. A bit more for the bosses, Senator Abetz on the bosses, and Mr. Barnacle are uh, blocking the race. Brilliant insight, Michelle. Brilliant as usual. And as usual, it seems the teams had agreed the left hand side of the ground, the left wing is out of bounds, and both teams will play on the right. And negotiations were taking place between Tanner Bull and the socialist captain Shorten Ambition, with a view to both teams kicking to the same end as well, which would provide us with a high-scoring game, Michelle, but apparently St Bernardi, Christian son of a man and a woman, a bit more for the bosses, a bet's on the bosses, and Barnacle, want Conner Bull to agree, before they'll him bleed them out, that the right wing is now the left wing, and the game must be played to the right of the actual oval. That'd put him in the grandstand, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. The group blocking the race want Mr. Tunner Bull to agree that the right wing is now the left wing and the game must be played to the right of the actual oval. That will put them in the grandstand. Another brilliant analysis, Michelle. Thanks for the lucid explanation. But if Bull agrees to the changes, there'll be a delay because they'll have to move the crowd onto the oval while the game takes over the grandstand. This is likely, isn't it, Michelle? Because Mr. Tunneville always agrees with those players blocking the race, showing he's a consultative captain. Very interesting, Kevin. If Mr. Tunnerbull agrees to the changes, they'll have to move the crowd onto the Oval while the game takes over the grandstand. This is likely because Mr. Tunnerbull always agrees with those players blocking the race where would we be without you, Michelle? Thanks again. Short and ambition, this delay shows Tunna Bull is a weak captain, unable to implement his game plan, and Tunna Bull says the delay is all Short and ambition's fault, but nonetheless, the socialists are prepared to play the game in the grandstand. And another sensation, the players blocking the race are also demanding the crowd moving on to the oval, must stand with a man next to a woman, and there must not be any Man standing next to another man, or woman standing next to another woman. What's that about, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin the players blocking the race are also demanding that the crowd moving onto the oval must stand with a man next to a woman and there must not be any man standing next to another man or woman standing next to another woman wonderful explanation Michelle, wonderful, you're certainly ratcheting up the excitement levels and yet another, another sensation caring business class fringe player Hoonson has declared she won't support the team unless she can be guaranteed the 3 quarter type oranges are not allowed. Here she is now. That appalling, you must be talking about blood oranges. Please explain! Well, that was our in-depth interview with her, Looks like there'll be a fairly long delay here, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. Well put, Michelle. Well said. Look, until the big game gets underway, we'll take you back to the studio. So for the time being, this is Michelle and Kevin signing off. Very interesting, Kevin. Yeah, we got that, Michelle, Surreal. OK, back in the studio, and we'll keep monitoring the situation at the ground, and thanks to Kevin and especially Michelle for her wonderful insights away from the big, big news, the grand final, worst-packed bank supremo Brian, hits customers hearts are, attacked bank critics who just don't understand how important the role of banks is. So important, he likened them to the human heart circulating blood, a circulatory system that pumps money around the economy and therefore critics of their obscene profits must understand that makes banks different to other businesses. And when he puts it that way, it It makes sense making obscene profits is accepting their social responsibility. But then having said they were different and must make as much money as possible, Brian then said, One way to think about why the GFC happened is because banks forgot why they exist and they started thinking they were like any other profit-seeking enterprise whose job is to make as much money as possible. Anything other than capitalism, we'd we'd suggest there's a contradiction between making as much money as possible and making the mistake of thinking you can make as much money as possible. But Brian gets his obscene salary because he is so smart and understands there are no contradictions in the greatest little economic order of them all. So there is no contradiction, just our inability to recognize there is no contradiction. For we can never doubt the altruism, the exists solely to benefit the community role of great corporations. Take BHP Billiaston, bloody huge profits, which attacked this outrageous hayseed and sheepshit party proposal in western True Blue Aussie to increase the royalty mining companies pay. Not because they're thinking about themselves and their obscene profits, but as usual, thinking only of those who'd be hurt. The people who are going to bear the brunt of the damage are going to be Western True Blue Aussies, and most particularly regional communities the Hayseed and sheepshit Party are meant to represent. Bloody huge prophets oozed sincerity. It's always the same with great corporations, pure selflessness. So that class action in Texas at a bloody huge profits, bloody huge profitable shale fracking operation must be an aberration. Security workers needed to keep the long-haired commie anti-fracking Luddites out are taking action over being paid less than the minimum $7.25 an hour wage, real figure, and not being paid overtime. After all, bloody huge is only there because it cares about the local community. It goes all over the world caring about local communities, the local community and the environment. If the long-haired commie lot would only realise that the resource industry's own unbiased neutral studies have shown fracking causes no harm whatever, Okay, okay, there's been the odd earthquake in Pennsylvania that some non-experts like scientists have suggested might have a bit to do with fracking and, and a few other minor problems, but if they'd only realise, then bloody huge wouldn't have to eat into its profits by paying those workers that exorbitant $7.25 an hour. That's $58 a day and they're complaining. And our bottom line shares a very, very good environment. Bloody huge battled on. And when you are a responsible corporation bent on doing good works, it must hurt. It must cut deep when the ignorant wouldn't work in an iron lots claim there are contradictions in the greatest little economic order. No contradiction, for instance, from that report this week the government sought from the usual neutral panel following claims the innovation and research and development tax handouts, tax breaks, were being rorted. As if! Well, the committee to look at the rorts and decide whether they should be better supervised recommended... Ways to stop rorting, I hear you say? Not that great corporations would be into rorting with government handouts, but ways too, I hear? Well, no, no. Recommended the handouts be doubled. Up to $17 million a year for large companies, showing there's no contradiction because it just maintains, or even better, doubles the non-contradiction. And any wonder we have to find savings in non-innovative areas like doll bludgers and single mums, sponging pensioners, state schools, public housing, public transport bleeding the economy dry all those optional spending areas finally, oh the debate oh well we've covered that now Finally, the aforementioned Hayseed and shipshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle came under fire unfairly for suggesting South Trouba over-reliance on renewable energy led to the state blackout, showing it needed to construct lots of lovely lifting the world out of poverty fossils. His critics saying surges and towers blowing over had nothing to do with the source of the energy what obfuscatory rubbish what blew the towers over come on come on of course the bloody wind you tell them barnacle good on you because you'd never use a disaster to push a political barrow full of coal good
0: morning good morning Cameron and thank you very much okay moving on um If you've just tuned in, this is Solidarity Breakfast. I'm Lalitha Chalaya and we are on to our last interview today and that's Humphrey McQueen who is a freelance journalist, author, political commentator, Marxist and all of that. Okay, here we go. Morning Humphrey.
8: Good morning, Lali.
0: How are you? <laughs> well, i
8: sang before, we haven't been washed away. No, that's good to see. I say yeah. been washed away, but, but we haven't. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but anyway.
8: But it could happen.
0: <laughs> I know, I know and, and of course, you know, renewables are, are blamed for all the climate disasters. It's got nothing to do with climate change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's another story. We are talking about, Das capital and the crisis today?
8: Yeah, well... Last month, now we're on the 1st of October, um, was the 149th anniversary of the publication of Das Kapital. And the reason I want to pick on this very odd anniversary is to start preparing us for the 150th, which will be this time next year. Mm. There will be a lot of discussion, um, even in the mainstream media, in the the ad mass media, um, about it. And we need to get... You know, prepared for that but more importantly we need to get prepared for it because of what it, it we can learn from Das Kapital about what is happening to capitalism today uh, the here and the now that's really why you know I keep reading capital um, that's why we've got so much to learn from it if we pay close attention to it so That's what I wanted to start off, and as you say, we'll link it into what's actually happening to um, to the real capitalist world, to real existing or real disappearing capitalism in the economic sector. Yes, desperate times, isn't it? Well, it is for them. I mean, I you know I have to confess that having been going on all year about you know how this you know the smash again is coming, yes, I begin to think you know am I making this up?
2: And <laughs> no, then, you're not. It's head it's, it's okay. You know, in
8: one week we, we'll, we'll get to that in the end. I thought, oh God, it's you know, what's going to happen if it's happened before we go on air on Saturday morning? No. <laughs> but it hasn't yet, so so we've been spared that embarrassment at oh. least. Now, one of the problems that people have with um, Marx and Capital is that they're told how difficult it is. Yes, um, and they're told that it's turgid is one of the words that is always used about it. Now, parts of it are difficult because it is trying to explain the most difficult thing, which is the nature of the capitalist system. Mm. So you don't actually expect to get uh, a kind of uh, Dan Brown uh, simple prose and, you know, five-page chapters to get you through that. So the question then, I think, is always where do you begin? If you I, think I had to read Desk Capital, um, now, I made the mistake when I started to read it when I was 18, at, the, at 55 years ago now.
2: Very brave.
8: Uh, well, I, well, I, well, foolhardy, I didn't know. I didn't know any better, you see. There was no one to tell me. I just, you know, it was there in the bookshop. It was, I think, seven, and six, seven shillings and sixpence or something like that. <laughs>
2: My goodness. Um,
8: at the old Moscow edition, and I bought a copy, and I started to read. And I thought I understood it. Because it is quite, it's deceptively simple in the beginning.
2: Mm. And
8: you think, oh yeah, I can follow that.
2: Mm -hmm. That's okay. I
8: know what that is. Well, how wrong can you be? That's right. Um, So over the years, I'm still learning what it is I missed out on 55 years ago.
0: New things dawn on you every time you read
2: it, doesn't it?
8: Ah, oh, new new things. I mean, I'm I'm in a reading group here with a couple of people who who hadn't read it at all before, and the things I've learned from them mm. because the things they say I don't understand that, and I think, but that's clear. Think, well, <laughs> why? Why? What's why their you? problem they're yes. having, yeah. and what I can learn from what they're asking me? Yes, absolutely. So if we don't start with chapter one. Where should we start? Well. There are some pamphlets, I think, you know, it's kind of, you know, if you're going to scale, you know, Mont Blanc or the Matterhorn or something, you don't pick the most difficult face of the mountain to go up the first time. No. So there's four pamphlets. Now, uh, all of this detail is on the, you know, We'll yep, go off the, you website, it, so, yes, you on know, the website, you know, people don't need to be sitting there with a pen and paper at the moment to be nope. doing this. There are three by Marx There's wage, labour and capital, there's value, price and profit and the critique of the gotha program. Now, all of those or any of those, particularly I think wage, labour and capital, is, is, a, is a good way... To get your head into where marx is going to take you the other one which i've always thought was very good was angles on the housing question mm. and given the importance of housing at the moment <laughs> yes. uh, even if you weren't <laughs> going to read capital it's very important to be reminded of the difference of of a society in which you have home ownership as the general rule as you used to in australia or in those societies more like um you know, uh, the German Republic now, where very few people actually own their own houses. But what difference does that make to the rate of exploitation? And that's what Engels deals with on the housing question. So there are four pamphlets that you should read anyway, but they're pretty good, you know, um, ways of getting your head into what Marx is going to try and get us to understand about the nature of this extraordinary system um, under which we all suffer. Now, some people suggest, well, if you skip Chapters 1, and one, 2, and 3 when you start, which is what I'm suggesting too, but you can start with Chapter 4. Well, you can, and Chapter 4 is a bit easier, there's no doubt about that, but that's not my choice. If I was going to recommend to somebody, where are you going to start? Now, there's another view, which is actually you know, probably the second best advice, I think, That is to start with chapter 10, called The Working Day. Now, the reason for, I think, starting with that, is that it's something, it marks there, is talking about something that every worker experiences, Hmm. the length of The Working Day. (coughs) Absolutely. And what it means in terms of people's lives. Yes. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. I mean, we've just been reading it here in our, uh, our Capital Reading Group. And, you know, it's it's... I mean, Marx is so angry in it as to as to what happens to people and how their lives are destroyed. But it really it really brings you in. The problem with Chapter Ten is that it's seventy six pages long, and about sixty of those pages deal with events that happened one hundred and fifty years ago.
0: Yeah, and that's always hard to relate to, sometimes, isn't it?
8: Yeah, and what we really need, you know, not so, you know someone else can go and do this, but to do that chapter, to leave the bits in where Marx is talking about the ideas and the real concepts that he's using and bring it up to date to all the stuff about, you know, fragmented work and, you know, flexibility, all of those things, to use the current examples and to make a chapter out of that. And one of the things
0: people miss out is that how uh, capitalism has organized your life, your day, every minute of your day.
8: Well, and (coughs) even when you're sleeping.
6: Yes, true. You know, the quality <laughs> of that. your sleep. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you
8: know, you know, I mean it's it's you know, I mean yeah. Um it's it's it dominates everything.
0: Mm. So, what you eat, yeah. what you eat, everything anyway.
8: Yeah, yeah. <coughs> so um uh, what I've done for chapter ten, and it's, it's 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 at the end of the um notes we have for today, yep. there I've put uh a kind of skim guide as to how to read the bits where Marx is talking about the broad ideas at, to separate out from the story of what was going on in say, in the 1820s or somewhere. So if you want to start with Chapter 10, which is not a bad idea, um, there's a bit of a guide up there as to which pages and which paragraphs in those 76 pages um, um, that you can make a start on. Now, my choice, however where to begin is the opposite of what the king says to um, Alice he says, which is giving evidence in the trial, he says to her start at the beginning, go through to the end and then stop well, my <laughs> advice is to start at the end Yes. <laughs> I think the, if there's, there's no one best place but chapter 33 the last chapter, it's only 12 pages it's very funny Mm. You know, it is laugh-out-loud funny.
2: Mm. Marx
8: has such a good time in it. Um, and so we as, we, as we read it through...
0: That's the one other, you're talking the about, tra- the modern theory of colonisation you're oh, talking about. The modern but, theory of
8: colonisation, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's the other thing that surprises people, it's set in Australia. Mm. And they think, oh, I didn't know Marx was writing about Australia. <laughs> well, he is and he isn't, because what the chapter's about... Marx is what is revealed in the, in the modern colonisation of Australia, the failure of it in Western Australia and the attempted success in South Australia. What, um, what it reveals is the nature of the capitalist system in uh, England. And that's, that's what he does. So you get, in that chapter, I think you get the real core of what Marx is saying. That And and which which is, there's no point in a capitalist having a lot of money. There's no point in him having, you know, no farm equipment and that unless he can make the bloody workers work for him. And when they went to South Australia in 29, the workers just, you know, that he'd taken out with him, they just walked away and fed themselves and said, you know, will you take care of yourself? Because as Mark said, what Mr. Peel, who was settling over there with all these um, capital bits of equipment and uh, things, what he failed to bring, as Mark said, the capitalist mode of production. Yes. He couldn't make the workers work for him. And that involved the power of the state and all those things. So that's why I think Chapter 33 is, is really a very good place to start. Um, uh, so... You know, uh but we can't run away from chapters one to three forever. You know, I mean, you do eventually.
2: <laughs> Gotta come back to says, it. Yep.
8: The fatiguing climb of its steep paths have a chance of gaining its luminous summits. <laughs> and that's what we've got to do. You know at some stage, but I don't think I don't think it's a really very good idea to start there at all. There's a bit of a problem about which translation um, there are three of those no translation of anything can ever be absolutely perfect no. so you just, you've, you've just got to accept that the other piece of advice I have is um, that you know, that you really need to read it with a pen in your hand mm. um yeah, you know, sometimes you know you kind of write the sentence out, just transcribe it because you know. I mean, I'm a believer that the act, or act of writing is part of how we get things to go into our head.
0: That's so true. I do that too. I'm always <laughs> writing, reading with a pen and paper. <laughs> of course,
8: <laughs> you know, I, you know, I would, I would. I, my original copy of Capital is now scribbled over so often yeah. <laughs> I can barely read what's printed on the page. i going to
7: get, get another copy. More. I do, I do, I do, I do. <laughs>
8: now, joining a reading group, I think, is a very good idea mm. because you do, you just. I mean, I just learn so much from from other people in the group.
2: Mm. Uh,
8: the experiences they bring to it, the questions they ask. I um, mean, all of that. Um, just means that you know that you you, know, you just learn so much from each other um, I mean, we've found that probably six is the best number mm. uh, you know if it gets any bigger than that, it gets too hard to do what what the other thing that that i 've learned is i think really the only way to proceed, and that 's to go very slowly mm. um, i mean i 've got some friends who, who you know, young you know, people in their early 20s who decided they were going to read it over the last Christmas vacation, and they read the lot. And that's not a bad thing to do to get, you know, the whole, you know, overall idea, but you haven't taken it in. You've really got, I think, about 10 or 12 pages every week, and that's all. Mm. And you meet for a couple of hours, and you go through it paragraph by paragraph. What we do, we sit around in a circle, and we take it in turns, one person discusses each paragraph and other people comment on that and then we go on to the next one. Can't Sometimes mm. we're going word by word, mm. trying to get, make sure that we've understood it and to, and, and to take it. And, you know, and, you know, and that, I think, my own experience, after 55 years of trying to understand it, <laughs> yes. that's the way I'd go. But you can't go slowly enough. And people say, oh, but, you know, don't we going to miss out on all of it. That's true. It takes you a year or two to do this. But if you just skim read it, you've really done the same. You haven't actually got it there either. Mm. So so that's the kind of thing we have to do. Um, Now, it is helpful in your group if there's somebody who's actually done a bit of this uh, reading before and has a kind of background that they can bring to it. The last thing you want... Is some bloody know all who's going to tell you
2: <laughs> yes. every
8: two minutes what, you know, I say a Marx says kind of attitude. Yes. You know, that's the worst thing you can happen. Mm. But for example, I mean, one of the things I've found in this group you know, that we've got going at the moment is you've just got to remind people at the beginning that Marx doesn't get to modern capitalism for about 200 pages.
2: Mm.
8: You now you've got to say, well, look, you know, we aren't at capitalism yet building us towards there step by step by step so if you've got somebody who can kind of you know uh, say things like that that's a bit of a help now you do always bring it down in your discussing it to what's happening today Mm. Um, you know know, that's just inevitable the the reason we're reading capital is because we want to change the world absolutely Um, but capital isn't a we (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's not what it's for. What it does tell you is about why the boss wants you to work harder and longer. It tells you why there's no such thing as a fair day's pay. And if you grasp those two things, you go into your EBA negotiation. What God wants me to do—that's <laughs> not what it's like at all. Yes. Now, what are the big strategic issues? I think, as I said, one of them is better fair days pay. The other—I'm just going to run through these very quickly.
0: Yeah, do because we don't have a lot of time either.
8: I know, I know. The difference between surplus value and how does that become any kind of uh, profit for the boss? How is it possible in Australia to be earning $125,000 a year and still be exploited? Um, What's the difference between a financial panic, this is what we're going on to at the moment, and a crisis from excess capacity, which we've got? Why must capital keep on expanding? And why is it subject to periodic upsets like we're having at the moment? Now, I said before that, that during the week... As I was preparing this to talk about capital, I thought, oh, you know then these three things really came up in the in real existing capitalism and So the three of them are what's happening in China what's happening in Japan, and what's happening to the Deutsche Bank now uh the one of these that's probably got a bit more publicity is the collapse of the Deutsche Bank in effect um now, some people say it's been bankrupt for you know at least since 2010. Hmm. Um, it's the biggest bank in uh, Germany, um, you know, therefore one of the biggest banks in the world.
2: Yeah, I was um, going to say Europe, but world would be right. Yeah
8: well it 's going down the plug hole mm. like it has been for, has been for quite some time. Um, it fails the stress test that the Federal Reserves put on the banks for the last two years, which means that if there 's another crisis, could they meet their obligations and the answer is no um, it 's lost its market capitalization that 's you know the value of each share multiplied by the number of shares it 's now down to well it was eighteen um, billion, but it's just been landed with a 14 billion fine, which means that, you know, God knows how they're going to cope with that. Um, so this is a real crisis uh, uh, over there for them. Now, what's happening in China? Well, we've been saying, well, I've been saying on this program for, you know, longer than I care to remember, yes. that, the, <laughs> that the Chinese economy is not about to take over the world. No, but the danger we face from China in Australia is its weakness, mm. not its strength. That's right. You know, it's just the opposite of what it is.
0: Yeah, not now, many people understand that, do they? It's, it's a, it fascinates me how well, dependent we
8: because, are. Oh, well, there, I'm going to jump onto Japan in a minute, but I keep reminding <laughs> people it's only twenty. You know. Five twenty-six years since Japan was going to take over the world.
2: That's right.
8: You know, well, they immediately went down the plug hole, and they haven't exactly. been able to pull themselves up since. Mm. But in China, in the last week, our friends at the Bank for International Settlements, who we uh, rely on for these things because it's their job, if anyone in the world, to know what is happening in in this, is they say that the uh, the ratio of the uh, uh, debt in China to its gross domestic product is three times over the danger threshold. my God. Uh, I mean, one to ten is kind of where you get into danger. They're now almost 30 to one. Um, and they warn that if it goes on, it'll, smar- it'll spark a global smash like mm. that of 2008. Mm. Well, that's true. But there is one little problem. Were Beijing to really enforce controls over the amount of uh, new loans that are going out to keep the economy going, if they were to stop that, the economy is likely to stall and that would spark the smash.
0: That's right. Either way, it's no so, way.
8: And then, after that, the International Monetary Fund came out and said, you, you have to put your house in order because you're going to take us all down. <laughs> Now, if then we go to Japan, which is you know kind of fantasy story beyond belief, they've been, they've got this policy there for three years of sort of, you know, boosting the economy by pumping out money. The government has actually been buying gov- not only government bonds, but real estate.
2: Hmm.
8: And going on buying in the share market to push the prices up. Because hmm. what they've tried to do is to get inflation up to 2% but it's stuck at minus 0.5. Oh, dear.
0: Nothing
8: they can do. Three years of this. Anyway, now, this is an indication of the collapse of the central banking system everywhere. The governor of the Bank of Japan has asked to ex- been asked to explain why it's gone wrong. So who does he rely on? Who does he quote? Peter Pan. Oh what? He quotes Peter Pan. Because <coughs> Peter Pan said, when you when you." When you think you can't fly anymore, then you can't fly anymore. <laughs> oh, good. You know, these are the people in charge of the world. Oh, Sorry. Dear, 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 dear. I know. Well, I mean, it ain't funny. I mean, I keep thinking to myself, I can, I, you know, I you know, I managed to live quite comfortably on the old age pension. How could I live on half of it?
2: Yes.
8: Which is what it would amount to.
0: Yes, it's you know, coming. What mm. happened
8: to the Greeks? Yes. You know? What happened to the rest of the world? That's right. So, these are some of the big issues there
2: that mm. they have to
8: talk about. Mm. Um, the the IMF, um, referring to the collapse of Deutsche Bank, said, yes. you know, it put out a report that said it's a source of contagion to other lenders and their insurers. Right. So, that's 2008. Mm. Um, so, these are the things that we, we need to be grasping, and I think that the, the, the kind of baseline, the foundation for it is to get a collective reading going, not just groups of, you know, four to six people, but in the left. We really have to go back to these core questions of what is capitalism, how does it work, why does it work when it works, and why does it not work in the current situation. And until we've got that, we really, you know, we're at a serious disadvantage if we don't understand our enemy,
0: true. And it's, it's, when we were talking about um, you know the EBA and all before, I was thinking every time the bosses calls you in for a negotiation, you know you've got to give up something. And people don't seem to understand that this EBA thing is such a furphy. It's it's oh, it drives me insane. It doesn't understand. Yeah.
8: Well, you know, you, you always go into negotiations, yeah, you know, and you've got things that you absolutely have to have, mm. and then there are other things you bargain over. Yeah, no. you know, um, you know, um, John Cummins was famous for going into negotiations, and two or three days later, the boss would be worn down, and they'd think they'd come to an agreement, <laughs> and they'd say, well, John, how's that? he said, just one more thing.
2: <laughs> he was good. <laughs> just he one was more good. thing. Yeah.
8: Uh, and that, of course, is what so much... We don't get from the you know from the supposed leaders of the labour movement anymore. Hmm. You know they are you know they just content with anything.
0: Well, the moment they're all worn down—that's the other problem with well, the legalities yeah. and well, so on. I
8: mean that's that's true. And yeah. the other thing, of course, is we know they're more frightened of their members than they are of the boss.
0: <laughs> yes. On that note, thank you, oh, Humphrey. All right.
8: Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. Get reading. Bye. Yes. Bye. bye.
0: And that was Humphrey McQueen. And let's thank our guests today. Uh, the CEO of Mission Australia, Catherine Yeoman, and the panel of uh, Jeffrey alexander X, Jacobs, Andrea Watha, Dilman Rahman, and Sir Bolton, discussing racism. Uh, Kevin Healy, of course, our satirist, and Humphrey McQueen, you just heard, who is a political commentator and a um, well-known Marxist um, writer too. So have a good weekend, and here's Asia-Pacific Currents waiting in the door to come on.